Turn arguments into a convenient audio form. I am joined not live and not in the studio by Frank. Well, actually, you are live. I mean, I'm alive, technically. Yeah, we are alive. We are live in a recording form. Just not in the studio. And also our special guest today is yeah. Kit from Knife Hands on Instagram. Famous for their uh, horror cosplays and horror video games. I think cosplay. famous enough. I have the Capcom seal of approval, so we can call that famous. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we're here to talk to you about surrealism in media, specifically around the works of David Lynch. Um, but let's first talk about what surrealism is. Frank, you um, are familiar with a lot of Lynch's earlier works. You're kind of an older fan of his. And Kit, you're a much newer fan to a lot of these surrealist works by him and uh, like those inspired by him. So what do you guys define as surrealism? I think this is an interesting question. And I know that you, uh, I, we kind of want to talk about David Lynch first off, but it's weird to talk about David Lynch first when you talk about surrealist cinema. Not that he isn't super popular or famous or what have you, but that, you know, the surreal move, the surrealist movement like started in cinema, started in the 20s and the 30s, you know? Uh, and I think just David Lynch just picked up that bowl and ran with it and became mainstream weird, which is like, uh, it's like pretty ugly, you know? It's, it's, uh, it doesn't quite make sense, but yeah, he is the most approachable, easily accessible, weird, and still legitimately weird filmmaker, I think working today, probably at least working uh, to the uh, to like mass effect to so the most, most amount of people know about him. And I think that's, that's a really important part to bring up, which is David Lynch is incredibly accessible. And he does take well, some of his works, from what I understand, are much further, much deeper into the surrealist-like pool. A lot of his work comes off in such a way to begin with that you can rope in just about anybody, even people who would not generally be interested in anything as, you know, shocking or absurd or interesting as surrealist cinema can be, uh, and just kind of lull them into this false sense of security. Right, like uh, your friend who doesn't want to watch on Sean Andalou will probably be okay with watching like a crop drama that turns out to be very weird yeah. or a murder mystery that turns out to be really weird or something like that. Yeah, it's it's the you're, Kit, you're saying that you could trick normals into watching. Yeah, we can get the normies yeah. in. <laughs> yeah, I'm into that. But I feel like, uh, especially with uh, his work and um, what counts as a as a very serious surrealist work anyway very serious i use with quotation marks that you can't see um i think there's a difference between that and say like a, a jake gyllenhaal movie like that like that he keeps trying to recapture after donnie darko where like every time he does a film that just has like a weird ending where like he walks into a bedroom and the girl's yeah. a spider <laughs> i knew that you were talking about that movie and i think that's unfair but go on <laughs> But I'm gonna say like there's a difference between like oh we had a weird kooky like thing that happened in our film, and real like dreamlike states that happen in like other pieces of work. Is there? I I call shenanigans on that. I don't know if there is. So uh, I may, maybe it helps to bring up your like our histories with, history with weird cinema and where we where we got into this because I'm very much informed by how. I got into it. Like it wasn't just 
film school or whatever. It was how I learned to like not understanding everything about what I was seeing. Yeah, and I, I feel like that does make, I agree that that makes a big difference on the way that you perceive it. Because if you go into everything expecting to understand every single teeny tiny little thing, you're there's a lot of things that you are going to just not enjoy. Now, when it's something where it's off-putting because it seems like it's right. there for no reason, I understand why people can some can not enjoy that. But in a way, it can be interesting to have those kind of like red herrings. It could be. So I think I think what I'm going to argue about is whether or not there ever is a difference. Uh, so I got into it basically as a young person uh, who grew up in the 80s. I don't know why I had to question that. <laughs> 1880s? Like, you, it was hard to get media. And, uh, you know, if you're a, a geek of a certain age, you probably still remember chasing stuff, right? You're like exchanging VHS copies at conventions or whatever. But, you know. No, I barely remember this, Frank. It, like, it was, it just went away when I was getting out of high school. And for me, it was like, that's how I, that's, I grew up into that. And, you know, a kid, um, a kid of immigrant parents who had no interest or even like the same language. It wasn't, they had no cultural language to, to share with. It, like, you can legitimately be, your parents could have watched, uh, if you're like English speaker, native English speakers, your parents may have watched uh, David Lynch, right? You know, but my parents would have had no, no, no idea. So I was alone in a little bubble as a kid. And uh, in that bubble, I often missed on like the ending of things. So we would record a lot of stuff off of television. I specifically remember recording, uh, I think it's called Weekend Special, ABC Weekend Special, which were like these made for TV kids books broken up into serials and aired or or even Doctor Who, right? Doctor Who would, would play on PBS in America in the 80s. But like that's all you could ever get. And if you missed one episode or nine episodes or all of it, if you didn't get the conclusion, hey, guess what, kids? You're choosing your own adventure because you're never going to know how this is supposed to end. So I grew up with media that had holes in it. And I grew up trying to fill in those holes. It's one of the reasons why I like storytelling, because I like making up my own versions of things as Al can attest to is had to put up with me pitching movies that never existed <laughs> years, including my award-winning Batman versus Superman uh, and possible. No, never mind. We're not going to get into that. Anyways. Yeah, so, like, <laughs> that's another podcast. That's a whole nother podcast network. But yeah, there, this, it, so it's always holes in the media. So I loved having an incomplete story. So when I first was exposed to surrealist cinema, including David Lynch, the fact that certain things never seemed to resolve never bothered me. I think for me, a lot of my experience with surrealism has always been in the form of horror. And so in that case, in, in the case of video games, uh, a lot of it is directly inspired by old cheesy horror movies and David Lynch and the kind of impact that those have had culturally. So like I grew up one of the very, very first movies I ever saw and am even vaguely like remembering was Nightmare on Elm Street. And I loved and adored the fact that, cause as a kid, when you grow up, it makes a bit more sense. But as a kid, a lot of it didn't really make sense. And the dream sequences hit you a lot harder because like you're not quite grasping everything that's coming together. And for me, it is an it became an element that I really do enjoy, especially when it comes to horror, because 
having those kind of moments of disconnect or where it doesn't all just wrap up neatly with a bow makes it so much more interesting because that feels more true to life. You're going to have more things that go on that don't get wrapped up neatly that you kind of see as like, oh, that's really cool. But then you forget about it, you know, like 10 minutes, an hour later. Uh, So I really like that element. I am so glad you brought that up because that is, you're absolutely 100% right. That is another half of my love for it. It's the, it is the the unknown, the fearful aspect of the unknown. When I was, um, when I was like first experimenting with storytelling, running role-playing games, I uh, would call like Cthulhu games or Lovecraft games. I would basically call those, I would think of them as these mysteries that uh, may never have an answer, right? Uh, at the time, I think I referred to them as Lovecraft games, which is I probably should have called them Lynch games uh, because they always had, and uh, this is another place where Al can maybe attest, there were structural m- mysteries in the stories that may or may not ever be resolved depending on what the people did within the stories. And I think the reason why I called them Lovecraft games was because this was the horror of the unknown. And surrealism is almost the unknowable, right? Because there's no answer. It's just dreamlike states. It's just the connections your mind makes. Um, And Lovecraft, you know, his big, we're not talking about Lovecraft right now, but like his big deal is the unknowable, the fear of the unknown is the original core fear. So what drew me to those stories as, as a young person was the, the, like the mystery behind it and what like, threw me off about most of the games that came out of that world is like they were core stats, right? You could, you knew how many, how many strength points Cthulhu had. And I was, I was always obsessed with saying like, I don't want to know the answer. I, I know that it is unknowable and that is terrifying. So yeah, fear and horror and mystery is all tied up in the surreal for me as well. That's really neat. Yeah. And I think one thing that I never really quite give horror enough credit for is the amount of mystery that does go alongside it. And especially when taking into account uh, surrealism too, the mystery is the best part. Uh, For me, the thing that I enjoyed the most and why I knew that this was going to put me into a downward spiral of I have to watch everything that Lynch has worked on with Twin Peaks is the fact that it sucks you in because it's like this almost kind of a parody, hyper real soap opera cop drama that just as once you get emotionally invested in it there's all these little teeny tiny things that are going on and I thought about if this were done in the modern day that would be resolved neatly and that would be given a focus so that that could be wrapped up and that would be exploited but then within the context of the show as people in the town would move on like a normal person the show moves on everybody's already kind of moved past it and you're stuck with these mysteries but you're not upset by the fact that it's not handled because you can come to your own conclusions. Yeah. I, I, Twin Peaks may have been my f- first or my early, it has to have been my earliest experience uh, exposure to Lynch who kind of masters the entire, uh, this is the nightmare in reality, but you know, just like a nightmare, it's not kind of, it's not real. So you're, it's not really necessarily f- pure fear it, it, it's almost like mixture of fear and frustration and uh the desire to control like just like a like a lucid dream um 
uh, yeah, I agree. And there, the Twin Peaks, ha- Twin Peaks definitely has this element of you can watch it. You could see how it became a cultural hit because on the on the on the surface, it's just a mystery with good looking actors in a quirky town. But it also has all these little elements in there that a obsessive person can get, latch onto, and it hit at just the right moment for the people we would later, you know, meet in droves, like with Lost and Ros- Roswell and Community, the people who obsess over a show that gets canceled too soon, uh, and feel like there's got to be an answer. You got to give us the answer. And I'm, I, yeah, I think Twin Peaks hits hits the mark. In one of the really fantastic things about Twin Peaks as well is that I mean you can watch Firewalk with me you can watch season three but you could watch just the first two seasons and have that be your entire Twin Peaks experience and I think your standard person would be completely fulfilled by that because it leaves on the right kind of cliffhanger enough has kind of been wrapped up where you can feel you know sated but if you're somebody that does want that next level to go deeper into you know, the the story deeper into more of the surrealism, then you have these additional works that do kind of get stronger and stronger. But your standard person, there's just enough to introduce you to surrealism in a way that you probably wouldn't have approached otherwise. You know, I've never seen season three. I haven't gotten a chance to see it yet. I've a friend of mine really wants me to. um, And I kind of do. Part of me is a little hesitant Cause I'm like, I don't, I don't want to revisit this insane little project that, uh, some say was ended too soon. And in my opinion, maybe ended perfectly yeah. because I don't know if it could have been sustainable. Exactly. Um, I don't, do you, do you feel like I, you told, you said you were a completionist at this point, <laughs> you want to see everything David Lynch has done, but is it was it worth doing was it is it worth watching like separated by a long amount of time if you could do it personally i don't i don't it's a mixed answer because as uh again i've only i started watching twin peaks maybe like a month ago and so i got through first two seasons then was like maybe i'll take a break but then was like now let me just finish it up and i i'm grateful that i found out that it was season three was supposed to be only nine or 10 episodes, but for Lynch to get the funding that he wanted, he had to agree to 18 episodes. And you can tell there is so much, if this got edited down to nine to 10 episodes, I think hundred percent, it would be worth, it would be worth it with that time gap. But because of the fact that Mm. there are scenes that linger too long and there are moments where it's done, a scene is done completely just for the art of surrealism. I think for a lot of people, it's not worth it because you, you've probably seen it elsewhere from him, you know, or you've seen it elsewhere in things inspired by him. You've seen it elsewhere in old surrealism. You don't necessarily need it in this context because it gets to a point where it does feel like it's dragging. Hmm. Yeah, I that I find uh, that's kind of what I was worried about. And I find it unfortunate that we don't have enough faith in the creative works that we put out that we have to say, let's commoditize this and make it so that it's 21 episodes. So we get a full uh, season yeah. commitment on a network that will never, ever air this thing. Yeah, like I, I definitely if he went and for the Blu-ray edit or something, just cut it down. 
to me, I would suggest it 100% watch all three seasons. What um what other David Lynch um, movies or projects or stories are you like most passionate or familiar with? I'm actually, I'm not all that familiar with anything else other than uh, Blue Velvet because of how influential it was on parts of Silent Hill 2. Ah. Uh, and even then, I've only seen uh, the first half of it uh, earlier today. Oh. I didn't get a chance to finish it out. <laughs> so I promised Al that, and I, I want to, Al, I want to kind of throw the gauntlet at you a little bit. Feel free to. Uh, you were like, the idea that, you know, there's some ridiculous surrealism where it's just weird for the sake of weird. And, you know, there's, you know, a spider in the kitchen for the sake of a spider in the kitchen. And then some of it is meaningful. Uh, so David Lynch, I had, I went down, a, uh, like all good film students, I went down a David Lynch hole as a youngster. Uh, I, uh, yeah, as you must. Necessary. Yeah. Necessary. Uh, you know, eraser head, blue velvet, uh, Mulholland Drive, on and on and on and on and on. Um, Lost Empire, and actually, friends and I, we had a group. We uh, we would meet up late at night, and we would. Wa- the challenge was: let's find the weirdest thing we can watch, <laughs> or subject ourselves to, and we would watch it. Uh, and then for like m- a month straight or longer, it was all David Lynch projects. Uh, I may have started it, but I, everybody signed up immediately and everybody brought their own things. I think it culminated when a friend of mine uh, brought uh, rabbits. And I highly recommend to both of you to look up David Lynch's rabbits, which I believe is entirely yeah. online now, uh, and watch it all late at night. And, uh, you know, call me in the morning <laughs> and let me know what you think about that. But we will leave an update with you on this, Frank. Yeah, Warren. definitely. Thank you. Uh, you'll know when there are no other episodes of this podcast ever produced because everyone involved lost their minds. <laughs> Anyways, but yeah, so there's a lot of great... But in my deep dive when I was young, uh, again, Blue Velvet has a, kind of this amazing scene in it where... And I don't want to like get into details or spoil anything. A character is like looking at the wall. There's something ridiculous in the wall. And if my memory is correct, and it may have, I may have mashed. That's one problem with surrealist cinema is it's very easy to mix what happened because it's not yeah. narratively a straight line. And I, I've, the way I remember it is somebody found a tooth in the wall. Um, Kyle McLaughlin's character, I think, digs and finds a tooth in the wall. That definitely, look- I, that's true. Yes. And I looked at that moment and I was like, this is, what is this? My mind was real. I, I went on proto internet and I was on a BBS and I was typing away like, what does this mean? And everybody's talking about the symbolism of this and what it means. And I'm relatively certain because I, just because of the, the depth of like, sh- like shame I felt immediately was at one point I had like gotten a director's commentary and it was just a simple matter of like, we thought this would be weird. <laughs> I thought it would be strange to do this. Wouldn't it be odd if there was a tooth in the wall? And I will tell you, young, young and Frank was <laughs> crestfallen in many ways. Oh, no. Because, like, when I was writing those horror stories and running those horror scenarios for my kids and t- or just telling weird mysteries, um, there were answers. I would never tell people what the answers are. And sometimes when I was really sadistic, I'd write it down and be like, all right, we didn't figure this out. Like toss it. Right. It will never be. 
right? This is, and, I, and you know, I think most people were consenting and enjoyed it. <laughs> no, I did, and I want to be, I want to be clear. This has I, happened. There has definitely yeah. been a horror game. I remember that was very David Lynchian, and yeah. at one point, I just convinced everyone else, like, let's not. And then we didn't. <laughs> and that was, and we... Oh yeah, that was, yeah. There was many times where the correct answer was like, "Let's not investigate this. Let's just go home. This we don't have to figure this one out." And then everybody agrees, and it was like, "All right, that's the end of the scenario. That's it. Over." <laughs> to be fair, that is the that is the most intelligent way to go about a yes, horror scenario. Absolutely. <laughs> like this seems kind of fucked. Yeah, let's, let's just, just go. go. But uh, yeah, and the the idea that there wasn't an actual answer behind this. Now, that doesn't mean there wasn't craft behind the filmmaking, and maybe that's what you're saying, Al, Yeah, that, that there wasn't craft with the giant spider. Uh, I don't know about that. But I think a lot of that ends up being in the eye of the beholder. It's who's watching this, what time in their life they're watching it, whether they've seen 10 David Lynch movies before seeing it. it your own definition of what strange is, is subjective. I am... Um, I don't know if I'm talking too much, but I'm in a, I, and I'm confessing something here right now. I am in a uh, I'm in a group called the um, what is it called the Incredibly Strange Films group, something like that. And it's a f- fairly popular group. Lots of people are on it, always making suggestions of films. And after like a few months of being in this group, um, whenever somebody was like, "Hey, give me some suggestions of films," a certain movie kept popping up, and it was Eraserhead which is a very good, very odd film. But it showed up so often in this incredibly strange, surreal, you know, list that I uh, I am, and I, I've never admitted this anywhere else in the world, I, I am the controller of the, eh, at least it's not a racer head fan page <laughs> on Facebook. It's exactly that quote, eh, at least it's not a racer head. And basically, whenever su- someone suggests as an incredibly strange film, some very mundane, like mediocre middle, like, you know, what a what a norm yeah. might think is weird. I somebody will comment. Eh, at least it's not a racer head, which gives them a little bit of a prop. Like, oh, you made a good suggestion, but, you know, <laughs> huh, this will count. At least you did, at least you didn't suggest a racer head yeah. for the 10th million time. It's a it's a very passive aggressive thing to do on the internet, which is the way you stay sane. But like, yeah, it's very subjective, and it, it wears out eventually. You just watch this stuff over and over again, and it's just uh, it doesn't yeah. mean anything anymore to you. So uh, we're we're establishing here that like, even if it's just like one moment out of a film, or like not that that was my point, but also that it doesn't matter how intentional it was or like how, or the meaning behind, not necessarily the craft behind it. Like we're not talking about whether or not it was done poorly because it's a quality issue. But if it's, if, even if there's not a point behind what's being done and even if it's just a random minute in a movie, it still all technically counts. Yes. Okay. So let's swing this a little bit the other way. Um, at what point do we lose surrealism entirely where like there's nothing that's referencing reality or referencing our source and we go completely into abstraction? Um, is that still surrealism or have we hit what some have coined abstractionism where it's just kind of like I would argue the the end of Ava, uh, like which we did the rewatch of a while back and go on the nonpro website and go check that out, is far more abstractionism than it is surrealism. 
Now, do we feel like there are works that go too far? Like you were talking about season three uh, kit of uh, yeah. of Twin Peaks. Does that just go too far where it like loses the loses the story, loses the plot, and like it's no longer about what's odd or different or weird and is just kind of stuff? Yeah, there's a there are several moments where uh, where it really it gets it goes from starting off as okay this is interesting this is visually very cool this isn't necessarily furthering the story but it's it's enjoyable to watch and then it's seven minutes later and it's still the exact same thing like slightly more zoomed out now or there's one sequence uh, that I actually I recall uh, hearing about on a different podcast and I was like it couldn't be that bad and then I got to it it's about. 10, 15 minutes of a black and white explosion just kind of repeated over multiple times. Nothing really to do with anything that happened before or after it. It's just kind of there. And it looks cool. And it if it was somehow, it, it got too separated from anything around it where it just, be, it felt like stuff. So I think maybe that's the problem when there's too much around it that, isn't connected then it starts becoming just a collection of things sitting in the corner yeah i i think the fact that there is a distinction is super helpful because for those of us who are snobs and i don't want to come off as a snob for saying at least not a racer it's tongue-in-cheek but like for those of us who are um uh, or, or 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 you know feel let down by certain media when it attempts to you know go far but not quite make it i think a lot of times it's about the 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 intent of what the the art is doing yeah. why what the artist wants you to get away with this come away with this and i think to some degree the surreal there is there are some things they want you to walk away with they may not want you to be like all right well the teeth are definitely x y or z but the teeth is unsettling. It's about body dysmorphia. It's about aging yeah. and feeling helpless. There are certain things that it, they want it to symbolize where like the abstract is strange. And in that own way, they're like, isn't it wonderful that strange things you can look at it and make up your own thing, wh- whatever it happens to be like, there's less intent or the, the intent is like, I want you to fill in the, the blanks. I don't want you to be uh, disturbed by this. I don't want you to be creeped out by this. I don't want you to think this is representative of somebody's uh, feelings or what have you. I, you know, I want you to use your, your brain will come up with its own. It'll connect its dots and make this uh, series of points into a picture. And I think that is cool. And I'm surprised that more nerds don't fight about this on the internet where they're like, you know, yeah, that giant now- spider, that was abstract, not surreal. <laughs> <laughs> Let's never name this film. Let's only ever talk about this as a giant spider. That way, one day, someone's going to watch a Jake Gyllenhaal film at the last minute, Spider. And they're like, that's what they were talking about. It is. It, I cannot stress this enough. It is a somewhat quirky, weird film until the very end when there's just oh a giant spider i guess that's the note we're ending on guys and like it's and it's like i gotta believe it's just jake gyllenhaal just like i gotta get that donnie darko mojo again like like that's the reason behind velvet buzzsaw 
and like <laughs> so many of the films that he just randomly is in that just have like these weird quirky moments in them see because then i guess then that is an important thing to bring up in regards to you being so off put by it is that are you able to accept it as just a moment that was put in there to give you this like reaction of oh it's weird what is that? Why is that how we want to end this? Maybe they wanted to end it on that kind of odd, quirky ending, like odd, surreal ending, like a lot of old horror movies did. Like Nightmare on Elm Street, those happen a lot. It's, it's very weird because like, yeah, I'm, but it's it's very weird because it's, it's almost the opposite of what happened with Frank, where Frank went and found out that Lynch had uh, never meant for the tooth to really mean anything yeah. besides just kind of being creepy. I went in, and this guy has, like, uh, the director has a diatribe. I wish I could remember the name of this movie. I'm so sorry. Has an entire diatribe, like a dissertation, about what the spider means, why it's there, why did the girlfriend, or the not-girlfriend, like, it's very weird, like, get suddenly is a spider at the end of the movie. Um, it's... It's just like no, I had a point and a reason behind this. There, I want you to. I wanted to make you feel like X, Y, and Z. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, but the rest of the movie's pretty normal. Like it's it's not a, a weird movie. It's quirky, but it's not like there's no like other elements or dreamlike qualities to it. It's all like kind of just a uh, a thriller. And then all of a sudden, it gets weird at the end. But like, is does the is the intent the only thing that matters? I think we established that it is. Like if it's if it's trying for something, then it, it kind of gets away with it. Uh, no, I don't think so at all. Oh, okay. I don't think the intent matters at all. I think you could be <laughs> surreal, and I think you could accidentally yeah. be surreal. I think you could. I think somewhere in someone's attic or garage or basement, somebody's like grandpa shot a bunch of like eight millimeter film and didn't know what he was doing, and it's the a surreal masterpiece that'll make. Um, Werner Herzog cry. It was like, it's beautiful. I can't. That wasn't. That wasn't my me trying to do his voice. I'm not doing that. <laughs> but actually, on that front, uh, one of my favorite things to watch, especially when I was in high school, and over the last like year and a half, two years, I've been um, getting back into it, are online like uh, creepy pasta kind of videos, and there are so many of them that you can wander into. Uh, like there was this one that I found that I think it was just a bunch of numbers and it was all just surrealist art. And there was, you could kind of piece together a bit of a story as things went on. Like there were things that were interconnected, but the, the appeal of it was the fact that it just looked like this odd out of place thing that you stumbled upon on the internet. Um, so yeah, so I think there can be, I think there can be situations where surrealism can be just this odd looking thing. But I will say that I, I guess maybe I just prefer it where there is something that kind of ties everything together when it's a long form kind of a thing. I'm nodding in approval. I understand that you get approved. Yeah, definitely. It's different flavors and you could, you could like that. Um, but I, I'm feeling surrealist myself right now. And I'm going to say <laughs> nothing matters. I'm wearing pants as a shirt. <laughs> but I, I think we are establishing to an extent, like what, like where our, uh, our boundaries rely on it. There's a, there's definitely a moment where things just become stuff and that's, we've sort of, and you sort of lose it at that point. Um, there does, but there is like, it doesn't matter the, 
back to what I was saying before, that even if it's just a small bit out of a film, even if it's just the the boat ride in the middle of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, um, it's still like still all part of it. It still all counts. But like what I would say is like what makes, for lack of a better term, that boat ride on Charlie and the Ch- and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, um, and Twin Peaks different from say like our our spider scene that we keep coming back to, and like say uh, Jennifer Lopez's the the cell, where like there's that's sort of like not exactly what I what one would call often surrealism. Oh, I, I think I can I think I have an idea just for at least the the Jennifer Lopez is the cell, which is how you say the entire title of that movie. I think it's because so much of the uh, the um the dreamlike stages or settings that you could see in that movie are extremely well defined. Right. Or same thing with like Lawnmower Man, right? With yeah. the VR. Like this it's a weird impossible never escape that they're in but it's because they're in dreams right it's, yeah. i would even argue to some extent you know nightmare on elm street it's this is the justification for why things aren't making sense i mean kids talk about nightmare on elm street when you're a kid and maybe you don't pick up on the fact that there's a there's a line between the dream and reality but i think yeah when i see somebody who's going into a vr state or someone who's wandering into somebody else's dreams you know that it's it is surreal there are air quotes on that but it's not yeah. a surreal film yeah and i i think that uh then going back to what makes it easier or better for i guess the general masses that's why something like nightmare on elm street or twin peaks can really hit it well with a lot of people is because they're you can kind of draw those lines it's a little bit easier to draw those lines and it's not it's still surreal and has surreal moments but it may not be 100 percent pure all surrealism the entire film or the entire show because i do think for like if i were to sit and watch a film that is front to back a true you know example of surrealism and like and i would love uh, a suggestion, um, if or a couple of suggestions, uh, we can talk about it later. But I feel like that could even be difficult for me, even as somebody that's been vaguely aware of things, because it may just be so different from what I'm used to seeing as film. Because I'm, I think I'm probably more used to seeing surreal moments versus like full surrealism. Yeah, I think yeah, a little goes a long way too. Uh, I don't know if. Twin Peaks would be anywhere near as captivating if it was nonstop the weird moments, right? If there wasn't a, a, a important through line that is pretty basic of there's a murder and we're going to investigate this. And, and I think that's what's important is like what makes, like as best as I can tell from what we're discussing, what makes surrealism work as best as it does is there's something that's that you that is to play to its backdrop. There is a a reality that we start with um, that at, at, at then is turned on its head yeah. as time goes on. Like I think that's what makes it that much like kind of different or something that like it changes as time goes on. Yeah, and I also think real is helpful. Like the real part of surrealism, where you look at it and you're like, this could happen, and this makes me feel like I know what's going on uh, when. Um, 
when somebody is experiencing something so bizarre and strange, my most, the, the, my favorite, so Atlanta, the show Atlanta, uh, like the first, I think it's the first episode, the first episode or two, there's a, a character is riding a bus and has a bonkers conversation with a person on the bus who talks about life and they're being a stick in the stream of life and then force and almost forces them to eat a Nutella sandwich. And it sounds ridiculous. It was funny and scary at the same time and also very identifiable. I'm not saying we've all had that conversation on the bus, but we've all felt like we were inches away from having that conversation yeah. on the bus with a person. Who <laughs> yeah. And immediately where you get forced to eat a Nutella sandwich. Being forced to eat a Nutella sandwich by a person who doesn't understand personal space and is probably a crazy person or something. Al, you clearly have not been on, like, any kind of New York metro after, like, 2 a.m. Oh, that's <laughs> yeah. fair. Okay. That's just the norm. Yeah. yeah. And it, it, it was – and it's to be clear, it's not just, oh, there was a, you know, a disturbed person on the bus in this scene. It is, like, it keeps ratcheting it up. So it, it felt more and more otherworldly to the point where and a character was – was half asleep at the time where you're like, is he dreaming this? Is this real? And then you're like, no, this is real. And it could happen. There's nothing about this. That's supernatural necessarily, but it feels off putting and still very relatable. Yeah. I think that is a good part of the relatability of, of a lot of this helps. It doesn't have to be every scene. There can be an occasional backwards talking, a uh, little person, but for the most part, yeah. there should be things that happen to you every day. And actually, um, this is clearly not uh, Lynch related, but that kind of makes me think of Jacob's Ladder and part of why I feel like that movie is so effective with the moments in it that fit into that category is because there's a lot where you're sitting there alongside Jacob and you're like, wait, is he is he awake? Is he asleep? Is this in his head? Is this really happening? Because it's these flashes of, no, 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 that's definitely, that could happen in real life. And, oh, wait, no, that's definitely supernatural. Wait, maybe it's not. I definitely remember uh, coining the term, finding myself dancing with a lizard, yeah, like when I was younger because of Jacob's Ladder. Because I think that there are moments that you can identify that you feel with. Even if that yeah. exact thing isn't happening, you can feel those emotions of what it would be, uh, what it is like. To sometimes realize, oh my god, I'm dancing with a lizard. How did yeah. this happen? <laughs> uh, it's it's weird. It doesn't it it doesn't it doesn't look right, but it feels right. Yeah, you just walk into a party, see your girlfriend dancing with a lizard. <laughs> <laughs> but we touched on a few horror elements and things, and I, I want to move us a little bit in because we mentioned it once or twice before about uh, one work that seems to be somewhat like taking some stuff from Lynch's table. Yes. Um, which was Silent Hill, which I feel is an, an amazing uh, piece of work that works in surrealist video games. And it's just, I didn't, I don't think I, we, we realized until recently just how much really was influenced by what Lynch's work was until now. And it's just, it's a, that level of just the, the other world and like, it's still somewhat grounded in that reality and that you have this town and that like, I mean, I'm doing a poor man's job of this. Like, can you know far more than I please explain Silent Hill? I do. I think, um, and again, I, I am excited to get back to you and finish up uh, Blue Velvet because I, I can see a lot of direct influences that that had on specifically Silent Hill too. And 
there is. There's the reoccurring theme throughout uh, at least the first four games, though you could argue really all of them, where you have these moments with the other worlds where you're not sure, are they still based in the real world? Are they transported somewhere else? Is it in their heads? Are they really, you know, functioning on this different plane of existence? Is it a different plane of existence? Are these monsters real? Um, and uh, like the, the first game, the whole basis of it just being a man who was on a road trip with his daughter and gets into a car accident, daughter's gone, and he's just trying to find her, roots you so much in connecting to him and connecting to that base world that when the weird stuff starts happening, I feel like that's why a lot of people pull through on it. Um, and the first game, especially having played, uh, cause I was always a bigger fan of two, three and four. Uh, but having gone and replayed the first one, there are a lot of moments in it where you kind of, you can end up somewhere and you could see something that happens like a giant ass moth that forms, or you climb to a top of a, um, uh, lighthouse and you see somebody that looks kind of like your daughter but older and she just kind of like says a line to you and then that's it then you have to go run completely somewhere else there's no wrap up to it there's no conclusion to it it's just kind of these moments that are put there but those are the things that tend to stick with you the hardest when you play it because of the fact that it doesn't really wrap up and i think there's something to note here which is like there's a difference in in cultures because we've talked a lot about what um like what western versions of what this sort of style would be or what the style is and even though silent hill has taken some inspirations from what's come before it clearly is still culturally influenced and i think that there is somewhat of a difference because i just by just by japanese horror in general being so just very very different affecting going for and affecting different fears than what most Western horror is. I have to imagine the same is true for here when we talk about surrealism. Um, and I think that Lynch uh, goes for more, as weird as this is going to sound, it's the subtlety and the overt are seem reversed to me. What's subtle in something like Twin Peaks or Blue Velvet or even Eraserhead to an extent, actually more so in Jacob's Ladder, I would say is a better parallel, uh, seems to be reversed when we talk about a lot of Japanese surrealist stuff like say Silent Hill or uh, like I'm trying to think of a of like Sweet Home for lack of a better term the the film but not not much the game actually because um, I do I I feel that is a good way to describe it because I do feel like a lot of Silent Hill at least the first two were very very subtle in the way that they did a lot of things and it could be very easy to miss. Uh, a lot of the more abstract elements of them if you didn't feel like digging too deep into it. Or you could just misunderstand it or not quite see it fully for what it was. Uh, like puzzle puzzles inherently in the Silent Hill franchise are about as obtuse as you can get. I will forever think about op- finding a can opener to open up a can and get a light bulb. <laughs> I, I was going to say, <laughs> like, yeah. because like in the, when we talk about Blue Velvet... We, we mentioned that the tooth is, like, a creepy thing that just kind of happens and, like, it doesn't mean anything. But if we were to look in something like a Japanese work, like, again, Silent Hill, the tooth not only would mean everything, but yeah. we the, the finding of the tooth would have been handled in such a different way uh, that, the fi- that the 
ob obtaining of it would be dramatic and not so much the discovery and like the build up it would it would be so differently paced yeah but just as strange and but like i just think it's interesting to note to note how different those things are and while we're on the topic of video games i think that and while we're here talking about david lynch and we're talking about twin peaks i feel that we would be remiss if we didn't mention what is ostensibly like one man's love letter to everything David Lynch is the game Deadly Premonition by developer Sweary. Yes. Which is pretty much just Twin Peaks the game. See, but that having... So I watched Twin Peaks finally. I finally was like, let me bite the bullet because I played Deadly Premonition. Because uh, somehow Deadly Premonition had completely escaped me. I've been aware of David Lynch. I've been aware of Twin Peaks for, you know my entire life as a nerd. I just never really felt the drive to sit and, you know, partake in any of it. But Deadly Premonition, I completely missed. And then I realized, oh shit, like I, I accidentally bought it for my Switch. Let me go play it right now. And it completely, like, I was completely entrapped in it. And I'm still like, I'm going back through to 100% complete it uh, before I even touch the second one. And having watched Twin Peaks, I actually, I, I understand why it gets that rep, rep because... It is very clearly a love letter to Twin Peaks, but it does have a lot that it stands on its own with too. It does, to me, it feels much more like an homage than it, and, and a love letter than it does a complete knockoff, which is what I usually hear people call it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That, like it's not the, yeah. Uh, Francis York Morgan is, <laughs> is his own character in his own right with his own very bizarre quirks. And I think it's, it's effective for the same reason that, the town of Twin Peaks is effective because all of these characters individually are very quirky. They're very interesting. They all have their own things going on that draw you in and their own moments that draw you in. But then things will get just completely dropped, you know, at the top of a hat and characters will react to things in ways that are so abnormal and weird to your standard person, but it's considered to be just completely normal. So it's almost like a dream state without being in a dream state from the beginning it starts out feeling oddly enough surreal uh, it's it's that's just the experience you have from the beginning up until it ends frank how do you feel about many years later there being this sort of love letter to uh lynch's works uh that came out uh as a as a video game from a japanese developer that essentially lets you hang out in a town very similar to twin peaks very similar <laughs> I feel like, uh, so we also did a rewatch of uh, Gravity Falls recently, which to me is a much more e easily reached, uh, accessible version of a love letter to Twin Peaks. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. And I think, I think it's, you know, beautiful. They're, they're, uh, well, Gravity Falls at least was fun. That's the one I have more experience with um, or any experience with. And I understand why you could see uh, David Lynch's signature on everything, not just Twin Peaks related, but just weird uh between lynch and cronenberg really it's 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 all the the if you want to make it like an easy homage to this genre uh if you could even call it a genre you would just you'd reference one of their their projects or their films or just a moment from them i think it's it's must be flattering for the filmmakers i think it's odd because it does lessen the oddity of it because it's become so cliched. Seeing somebody hugging a log, I'm like, all right, that person is that's a that's a yeah. tip of the hat to Twin Beaks. Somebody in it when when a Mulder 
goes into, and that was, you know, what well, relatively uh, timely when Mulder goes into a, a diner and orders pie after pie after pie in one of the many surreal and funny episodes of the X Files. Uh, it is. It makes you feel like, oh, this is a little nod to to Twin Peaks, but none of it actually, unless they do something new with it, significantly new with it. Um, it's very hard to distinguish yourself, which I guess means when they do distinguish themselves, they're they're knocking it out of the park, or they've you know they've separated themselves from the original audience by enough where like oh well I play the game first and then I watch Twin Peaks, so you know it doesn't bother me. But we did, but you did watch Twin Peaks before seeing Gravity Falls, and that's still and Gravity Falls. I feel like I think the, the thing has to be like you not you aren't just a love letter; you're a love letter that's saying something as well, or bring something oh, yeah. else to its table and i think as long as you're doing that you're okay you're okay but i wouldn't call gravity falls surreal you know i don't sit up thinking what was that what was that about and you could say well it's like you know a kid's cartoon and that's yeah, less yeah. like you can't think of many kids cartoons that would be truly surreal um but beyond that i also think that you know it's because it's so familiar uh, there's no question about what was that i i kind of know it's uh, and and those are dealing with very different parts of the brain uh, in an interesting way, uh, because the homage is and the nostalgia is tickling the part that is comfortable, right? It, it the part that knows what it's experiencing yeah. and gets the references and enjoys the experience, re-experiencing it, and the uh, the surreal is tickling the part of the brain that is trying to make sense of something, fit it into something that you know and understand. So they're related, but they're not the same part. And I think it's interesting when nostalgia and surreality kind of mash up because they're both looking for a part of your head saying, you know what this is. Trust me, you know what this is. And I think uh, on a similar note that I would not call Deadly Premonition in any way surreal. But it has, it does have its pieces where there is something surreal going on, but it's not a surrealist game. Uh, I definitely don't think it deserves that moniker because it has, the moments of it that are like that are not what define it as a game, as a piece of work. But I think maybe in its particular case, that's probably why it's so effective because to have a game be truly a work of surrealist art, I don't think you could have it be long form. I don't know if something could sustain that and sustain that feeling. I I would say there might be something in like, like Catherine. Catherine you know definitely yeah. comes off to me as very surrealist. Yeah. Like it's, that's, and that's extreme. Like, I mean, it, it has to deal a lot with dreams and it grounds itself consistently with your relationships that you're forming with these people in this very uncomfortable dynamic that you wind up having with these uh people that's like sort of romantic and very sexual and the ideas of you know growing into a a more firmer part of adulthood that then like manifests itself in your dream state where you could apparently die there's i mean it's nothing ties back to a lot of the we're talking about before but if we're talking about something that you play through that feels weird and unsettling and like again surreal um, I think that, that game checks all the boxes. Yeah, that is fair. Because it does, maybe it's something where I myself need to just sit and, because as, as we're having this discussion, I'm really thinking that I need to really reevaluate what surrealism is to me. Because kind of going back to a point that Frank brought up, I think the more that this kind of thing is put into media and accepted and kind of put to the forefront, it does kind of desensitize you to it. 
because I think in retrospect, I can definitely agree that Catherine is is a surrealist video game. It could definitely fit into that description. But my gut reaction to it isn't that because I guess I'm so used to that kind of a trope. To me, a lot of the time, I don't even think of dream stuff as necessarily fitting that box. But it probably does more than I've just sat and thought about it because I'm, again, used to it. I think uh, like a good example is this, and like you two can tell me if I'm wrong here. The the playing chess with death at some point was poignant and surreal and like the epitome of that like art house kind of surrealism. Yeah. But now it's like, oh, Bill and Ted or like that scene of 500 Days of Summer or anything like that. It's just like it's it loses yeah. that luster when it's referenced that many yeah. times. And then when the references yeah. become the thing that yeah. you remember more. Familiarity breeds contempt. Uh, no, I don't know if it's contempt, but yes, it definitely, the more, f- I, I think there's a reason yeah. why you, people get burned out on horror. Uh, I think eventually you've seen it all. Uh, and maybe it takes some time for you to uh, see something new or even just reappreciate something you've seen before. Uh, and I think, uh, I think one of the uh, scary things about this conversation, especially if you enjoy surrealist works, is it may be that the more you have experience with them, the less they hit you. I, I talked about there was like a few months and years where I would just devour everything. And now I'm like, it's been a while. It has been a while. Every once in a while, something new will creep in. And they usually, uh, it surprises me. It's where I don't know it's coming. But yeah, it's hard to find something that scratches that itch quite the same way. Um, But I mean, we talked about uh, suggestions earlier and I would love to hear some. I would say um, check out Lynch's most recent work on Netflix, which is what did Jack do? And I, it's, it really feels like the epitome. It's like a 20 minute, 25 minute um, like film of Lynch acting as a police officer interrogating a uh, Reese's monkey uh, to like <laughs> try and get him to confess to a crime that he may or may not have committed. Mm. And interesting. It's, it's very strange, but it's that it's a, you can tell it was, it was written in a stream of consciousness that like had a point to it for lack of a better term. Like, I think this is what makes Lynch work so well and why he can continue to make works that still hold that, even if his older works are referenced so hard that they don't, like, hold the same value anymore, is that he's always genuine about it. Like, this was, this is, whatever he puts down, it's not like him trying to be weird. It's just like, what if I just write down what's going on in my head and just put it down and, like, I'll try to connect it afterwards? Or create a right. loose thread that 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 brings it all together in some way and that, and that makes it hold up uh, yeah uh i think earlier i mentioned um actually i think i called it lost empire which is if we're going to stick to lynch works uh, not lost empire inland empire or or lost highway either one both of them are both of them are different lynch works i'm more uh, you know you can watch them back to back and see if there's a <laughs> hidden movie in between um inland empire that would be really awesome. <laughs> that would be true surrealism. <laughs> uh, and I think those are great, but I, the one I suggested for all of you, I'm sticking to it. Yeah. Rabbits. Go watch Rabbits. 
do that. Uh, but if you want a non-Lynch, I'm going to go with a classic. You know what? It's not just it's not just him. He there's a lot of great people in there in in, in the classics. Uh, I'll go with The Shining. Oh. The Shining is is like perfect. And it, you know, this is a whole new filmmaker we haven't talked about, and who is extremely deliberate. But still, still with The Shining, if you've ever, I don't know, I I assume you've seen Kubrick's Shining. I have. I love it. And maybe you've read some uh, more recent uh, reviews or analysis of it where it gets into great uh, detail about the art in the hotel and how native american art was represented and the the you know the the great the the slaughtering and the the great sacrifices and horror, bloodshed and how it's all represented in in the overlook hotel like there's a lot of depth there that even though kubrick is this genius who would have thought about everything i don't know that he thought about any of the things people are talking about now uh, they're they're finding surreal moments in the film that I am uncertain that the filmmaker originally intended in a film that is very weird on its own. Yeah. Uh, even weirder if you watch it as a kid and you didn't pick up on yeah. some of the <laughs> things that were just creepy, but not necessarily odd. But well, you know, whatever. But yeah, I think The Shining is a is a good example. Yeah, and see, and that's that's another thing where. Again, I'm going to have to sit down and which is why I'm glad that I'm I've been introduced to surrealism outside of the context of horror and outside of the context of, you know, being suspense, psychological horror, that kind of stuff, because due to that, I don't really think of horror movies as being in that same kind of category. But in retrospect, absolutely, there are some that should be like Shining is absolutely up there. Uh, the first Nightmare on Elm Street, I think, definitely could even be in that category. I think that's probably one of my favorite reasons to watch that with people is because it paints itself so well. Wes Craven does such a great job of painting it where you know that Freddy's real, but you genuinely can't tell which parts are truly real and which parts are the kids just overreacting to a way that really wasn't done. I can even think of a of an example of a really good serialist work that is uh, I don't think many people have seen and is very much not a horror film. One of my top ten favorite films has got to be Mirror Mask. That is like done by the like Jim Henson Company as this like amazing sort of almost Alice in Wonderland type story of a girl like lost in um in the mirror world for lack of a better term, and it's. It's very much all of these very surrealist elements brought together, uh, but in a fun kids' adventure story, and it works really well. And I think it's a it's a beautiful film, beautiful film. Works on plays on dreams and mirrors and otherworldly and doubles you haven't met yet and foretelling the future within the past. It's all very. It's it's an interesting film for and it's and it's meant for kids. And I say definitely if you get the chance to check it out. I'm I'm uh, without sound checking out the visuals from a trailer and it does it looks incredible. Yeah, I've never heard of it before. Yeah, definitely add that. All right, well, thank you both for coming in and having this conversation, um, this very uh, surreal conversation. <laughs> uh, we like to have fun here. I was never actually here. Oh no! <laughs> no, it's because I'm at home. Oh, we're doing this remotely. Oh, that's right. I was just I was, yeah. None of us were here. Thank you guys so much for coming in. Thank you all for listening. Please like, uh, comment, subscribe, and uh, like 
join us on the podcatcher of your choice or you know join us in the non-pro fan club uh if you want to go and uh, look up more about uh kit's cosplay please go to uh knife hands on instagram that's uh k-n-i-v hands uh on instagram and uh good night everybody i've turned into a giant spider i'm so sorry oh uh, not again sometimes it just happens <laughs> <laughs> This has been a non-productive media presentation. Executive producer, Frank Hablawi. This program and many others like it on the Non-Productive Network is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Please share it, but ask before trying to change it or sell it. For more information, visit non-productive.com.